Welcome. If you're a guest, uh, I want to welcome you. My name's Steve Cunningham. I get to be the lead uh, pastor here at Wellhouse Church and uh, just excited about so many things that are happening here, so many things are on the horizon, uh, and uh, we are... We are uh, excited to do what God has called us to do in this, and, and we're thrilled that you're joining us here this morning. Um, and I, I have to tell you, I have I have a whole lot of passions uh, in life. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a whole lot. There's several things I'm really passionate about, uh, and one of those things just happens to be this time of year: football. I love uh, I love football. Uh, maybe too much. I don't know. Um, but I get to watch our two youngest play. Uh, they've, they've been playing in the NFL flag football league, you know. And I, I don't know if you've been a part of like little leagues or flag football leagues or something like soccer leagues with kids and you see the parents who get like a little too over the top, right? Um, you know, you're like, all right, listen, this is, you know, this is eight-year-olds. You know, nobody's, nobody's going to the big leagues tomorrow. So we need to chill. And maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not where your passion comes out. Uh, maybe your passion comes out with something completely different. Uh, but one of the things for Wellhouse that we, we have said now for the last couple of months, and we want to keep saying it because we know that if we forget this, we forget everything that God has called us to do, not only as a church, but as Christians, as Christ follower, and, and that is this, that, that our biggest prayer, our greatest joy, our most significant mission, the thing that we get really pumped up about, the thing that we're passionate about, you know, the thing that we stand up out of our bleachers and yell for, should be to help others find a transforming relationship with God. That's the thing that, that we pray that as our church, that, that is the main drive, is to help other people find the same transforming relationship in Jesus that we have found. And so what we asked you to do several months ago, our, our partners here at Wellhouse, uh, is we ask you to set a timer on your phone every Monday morning at 7 a.m. And so for some of you, you've already been at work for you know a few hours or you've already hit the gym, whatever. That, and some of you are like, I didn't know there was a 7 a.m. on an alarm clock, right? I don't, I don't see that time. I, and in order for me to get up that time, you know, I have to have a little talk with Jesus, and um, even that doesn't make it right. Uh, and so some of you are like, I do remember that hymn. Yes, another Jew, that went right over. So that's okay. Uh, but we ask for you to pray about that, specifically, that you would pray, number one, that God would give you a heart uh, for people who don't yet know him. That God would put that on your heart as a mission, that, that you would say, all right, listen, when you called us to go and make disciples, that was me. And, and I want that to be a part of it. And then that he would give you courage to do that because that's not easy. Sometimes it's easy to share other things, but in today's culture, it's not easy sometimes to share our faith or our story, the way that God transformed us. And so we ask that God would give us courage in that. And then we, we've also said to pray for uh, that our eyes would be open to whoever God is putting in our path. And I've talked to several of you over the last uh, month or so now, and you shared stories with me about how as you prayed for those things, that your eyes are kind of open to some of those scenarios and how cool and uncomfortable that can be. And, and we ask that you continue to do that. We're launching off a new series uh, this week. It's going to go through the month of October. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that, um, that I love football. I grew up in a family uh, where 
you know, my dad's side of the family in particular, they're all really big guys. Like, I am, I'm kind of, I'm the runt um, of the family. My dad was the runt of his brothers. I'm, I'm the runt uh, of the family as well. I kind of fall in line with him. But, uh, but my uncle, Mark, was, you know, he's like six. 6'4", I think he was 6'4", like 400 pounds. He's the guy that you don't want to meet, you know, in the alley, right? That was him. And so all of, all of that side of the family, was big, we were big into sports, especially football, because what we were told was, you're built for it. You're just built, you know, you're, you're, you're probably not going to make it in ballet, my friend, but if you were to take your size and you put it out onto the football field, I bet you could do something with it. And you've met people like that, right? You met somebody tall before, and the first question out of your mouth was, do you play sports? Do you play basketball, right? Because you look at them and you say, you're built for that. And here's the thing that as we'll look at over the course of the next few weeks together is that you and I were built for stuff. But sometimes those things that we're built for don't answer it. It's okay. It might be God calling and you just never know. Um, we don't want to miss an opportunity. Um, but we're built for something, but here's the thing. It may not come naturally. It may not come naturally. We may not see it in our life and say, you know, whew, that you are definitely a prayer warrior. I can tell. In fact, you may think, that's not me. That's not who I am. And you may look at yourself and like, worship is not really my, like, I don't get into, I see other people and they're like, you know, they got the double high five praise going on and that is not me. I'm more like, you know, maybe I'll stick a hand out of my pocket. You're like, I'm not a worship guy, Right. And so you may think that there's some things in your life that you are not built for. But as we look through Scripture over the next couple of weeks together, I think you're going to find that there's some things that God built us for. And that over time, what we have to do to live into those things is to exercise it. And that's hard to do, but I hope that uh, through the course of time together over the next few weeks, we can develop those things together. Um, I want you to think about this, uh, play a little scenario along in your mind with me. Uh, and uh, my family and I, we own about four and a half acres out in Greenbrier. And we've been cultivating, kind of taking back over uh, some of those acres over the last couple of years uh, that we've been here. Today is actually like, we've been here two years uh, uh, here. And it's amazing. Yeah, we are super blessed. Um, to, to be here for two years. And over the last two years, we've kind of been reclaiming our house and reclaiming our land. And one of the things that we want to do is we would like to plant a little garden where we can, you know, put in some blackberry bushes and some blueberry bushes and grow some things like that. It'd be a lot of fun, um, minus the snakes. Uh, but other than that, it'd be a lot of fun. But I want you to imagine with me for a minute that I tell you what I'd like to do is I'd like to plant in these kind of rows some blackberry bushes and some blueberry bushes because we'd like the fruit from that. We would like that. We love to, to eat those things. And so uh, I go out to the store and I look for those things, but they're kind of expensive. And I don't really know a whole lot about growing that. And so instead, I notice on the side of the road that there's some weeds that are just seem to be like popping through, you know, even the asphalt. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if it can do that, it can survive 
my negligence. And so I go ahead and grab seeds from those things and I take those seeds and then I plant them in the garden area where I would like to have blueberries and blackberries at. And you would say, Steve, I thought you said that you wanted a garden that you would like to eat blueberries and blackberries from. But Steve, listen, if you plant weeds in your garden, you will not get the things you want. You'll get something else. And we understand that that principle doesn't work, right? You can't plant things that you don't want to grow and expect something different to happen Because what we understand is true from Galatians chapter 6 is this thing called the law of the harvest, right? We say it like this, you reap what you sow, right? And so I want you to think about this, that in your mind, you have soil. And there are things in your mind that get planted there. And it's hard to cultivate some of those things, right? Some take a lot more practice than others. You have to repeat and remind yourself oftentimes like, no, no, no. It's worth the effort. It's worth the work. It's worth the investment. But sometimes other things seem so much easier to grab and go ahead and plant in there. But when we do those things, we have to understand the law of the harvest, which is you will reap what you sow, And so in the garden of your mind, in the garden of your heart, I want to ask you, and I'll ask myself this question, is what do you plant there? What's there for you? What eventually comes out of the things that you repeatedly feed your mind or feed your heart? Because truly, in fact, you will reap what you sow Today, I want to talk about this idea of worship. And I know what you're thinking, like, okay, well, how does that translate into reaping what you sow? We're going to kind of tie it all up at the end, and I think you'll see what I'm getting at. But as we talked about this idea of what are we built for, uh, Chris and I shared a few weeks ago that, that worship is one of those things that, that comes naturally to some and not as naturally for others, but But worship is something that we truly are built for. You were built to worship. And last week we talked about this very idea that everybody will worship something. Everybody will serve something. Everybody will be in bondage to something. And the question is, what is it that you will worship? Philosopher, author, writer, David Foster Wallace, who you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, he's, not, uh, he's not a Christian, uh, but, but he is uh, somewhat famous in the philosophy world. Doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Christ, uh, certainly has no uh, fond feelings for the church. But he didn't pen these words, and I think they're worth hearing. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, how many of you have heard the phrase adulting in the last few years, and you recognize that adulting can be difficult? And so he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult, adult life, there is no actual thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. 
The only choice that we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths of some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. You will worship money and things, and if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. That is the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly, not valuable. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant in you. On one level, we, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths or proverbs or cliches or parables. The skeleton of every great story. The trick is to keep uh, the truth up front in a daily conscious. You worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being outed and found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are a default setting. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure or value without being ever fully aware that that's truly what you're doing. In the world, it will not discourage you from operating on your default setting because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and the craving and the worship of self. Now, I may not fully agree with everything that David Foster Wallace says, but I do agree with the fact that it's easy, that we are built to worship something, and that it's easy to come into a default setting where worship becomes uh, what you like or prize most. Oftentimes, it becomes what, we, uh, what comes easiest to us, the path of least resistance. The truth remains that we are made for worship and we will truly worship something. In fact, I heard worship defined this way and I, and I appreciate it. It says, worship is my response to what I value most cultivated by what I consume. Worship is what I value most cultivated by what I consume. And so out of the things that I consume, I, I wind up shaping my values. And the thing that I wind up valuing the most is the thing that I wind up worshiping the most. And so it needs, it's, it's clear for us that we need to be aware, keenly aware of the things that are going into the garden, the soil of our mind, because out of that is what we will harvest. And if we let it go to a default setting, it will be us. 
If you know me at all, you know one of my uh, favorite verses in the Bible is, is Romans chapter 12. This verse kind of came alive to me about 10 years ago as I was reading it. And the more I read it, in fact, the more I feel like there's truths revealed that I didn't see before. I feel like I've, I've read that, ver- that section of Scripture over and over again, probably hundreds, maybe thousands of times at this point in the last 10 years. And still, the more I read it, the more that comes alive for me in it. But in Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bible, you can flip on over uh, to Romans chapter 12. And this is what it says. Uh, As Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship, or this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. I think there's several things in here that kind of help us uh, to understand worship in a way that starts in the soil of our mind. And there's a lot of psalms we could go to. If, if Chris uh, had swapped me today and, and he were talking about worship, he might take a different angle and he might go to some of the psalms of David. And those are wonderful. I, I kind of take it from a minister standpoint of, of just understanding or, or getting in the nature of our mind of who we are. Because generally speaking, I'm not a big feelings person. Sometimes I have to understand what's happening in my mind to understand why my body's doing the things that it wants to do, right? And so Paul addresses this thing, and he talks a little bit about our mind, but but before he gets there, he helps us understand something. And in fact, in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the very first word, he says, therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And he's referencing what he just said before. It's a doxology. It's a song. And the song is about God. And he just sings this song. He just writes this song about God. And then he says, it's out of this that everything else follows. So back up just a little bit. Look at Romans chapter 11. And this is what he writes. Oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counselor? Meaning, who's ever had to say, all right, God, I see you're having a bad day. I see you need to process through some stuff. You can't figure some stuff out. Let's, let's talk about it a little bit. I'll coach you up a little bit, then you go on down to No. Well, who can figure out the knowledge of God? Like, who can contain what he does and does not know? Nobody. Well, well what limit is his power? Well, there isn't one. He says... Who's ever given to God that God should have to repay? Like, what do you have that God needs? Nothing. For from him and through him and for him are all things. Let me read that sentence one more time. 
for from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. Where are you from? A lot of times if you have somebody ask you that question, you're like, well, I'm, you know, I was born right here in Tennessee, or if it's me, I was born in Indiana, or you might say some other state, or you might localize a city or a, a section of the country where you're from. And God would say, no, 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 you're from me. And you know why you came to be? It's for me. For him, all things were made to him, so to him be the glory forever. Amen. And Paul puts this out and says, listen, you don't understand the magnitude of the God who calls you his beloved. You don't understand the magnitude of the God who says, I love you, and I love you so much that I'd be willing to send my very best for your very worst. You don't get it. Because everybody else in this life, there's going to come a time where their knowledge runs out, or their wisdom runs out, or their capabilities run out, or their power runs out. There's a limit to how much they can do, but that's not true of our God. And so, he would say, or therefore... I urge you, in view of God's mercy, because he has access to everything, but he still loves you. And he sees everything you did, but he still loves you. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, here's the thing Paul would say in the therefore statement, is that worship is my life's response to the greatness of God. That's what worship is about. See, we don't come to this building to, to worship, to sing, although we do that, and that's a part of worship. And worship is just my life's response to this God who I cannot contain, even though sometimes I want to. But he goes beyond this. And he begins to talk about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. And before we move on, for some of you who you may feel like worship is not something that comes naturally to you. You're like, I, I would love to be more worshipful, but, you know, then I wake up and I realize I have to do life again. And that kind of gets me out of the zone. Or, you know, I would love to, but then I have a coworker, And, you know, I love to, but I have, you know, whatever it is. And then you're like, and that just takes me right on. And I, and I don't find myself in this worshipful spot. And then maybe take a, a note from Paul here in Romans where he references how good God is. And maybe I'll challenge you this. In the morning, sit down and write or share or get out of your head in some way. Tell somebody else one character of God that you are super thankful for that day. Just get it out. Because that may be the one thing that day that you can find to worship among a day that goes completely south. And some of you in that adulting life, right, that, that David Foster Wallace had talked about, you lose that and you begin to worship something else. You worship busyness. Some of us worship stress. So before the day begins, share Search out who God is, write it down and share it 
the one character of God that you're so grateful for that day. Paul's not done, and in this, in this first verse that he talks about, he says, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing to God. And he said, this is your spiritual act of worship. This is the true and proper worship for us. Now, for us, we don't talk about sacrifice as much this day. In fact, if I like started to bring that up too many more times, you might begin to question where I am on things, and I understand that. But for them in that day and age, sacrifice was a common way of, of, of uh, just life and their spiritual mode. And so they understood what a sacrifice is, but Paul digs a little deeper. And he says, I don't want you just to sacrifice something. I want you to sacrifice yourself. And in fact, I'm talking about a different kind of sacrifice. And this isn't just a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. And this is way different. This is harder. Because it requires us daily to die. Die to the things that we want most to have the thing that we know we most need to desire. And here's what Paul notes in this, that worship is hard, worshiping God is hard when something else is in his place. And that's why he asks us to die. That's why he asks for a living sacrifice. That's why we have to sacrifice something in order to worship him. But the living sacrifice is much, much harder. In fact, he goes on to kind of describe what that process looks like in verse 2. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. And I remember thinking about this early on and, and kind of understanding what that would be. And my default answer was always kind of the youth group answer, you know. It's, it's either you're going to yell out Jesus or sin. And most of the time you're right, you know. Who loves you? Jesus. You know, uh, who's the best? Jesus. You know, what shouldn't you do? Sin. You're like, good. You scored an A. Um, so I thought that's what it was. Growing up, I'm like, the pattern of this world is sin. And then I discovered something as I got a little older. It's true for me and it's true for you. See, we sin differently, but there's a default for you and I that's not different at all. In fact, there's a default for you and I and everybody else who's born that we have to train ourselves out of. It's in every baby. You take that baby home from the hospital, right? And you put it in the crib. And then eventually that baby is going to start crying why? Because it needs something, right? And it doesn't care how tired you are, how little sleep you got, how frustrated you are. That baby is concerned about what it wants, what it needs. And for some of us in this life, that's the thing you're still wrestling with how to get rid of. Like we train ourselves over time, like, all right, you know, I need to... I need to be less focused on myself, but the truth be told is for some of us driving down the road, you know, it's the traffic's going slow or the checkout line's real long. And it's like, I'm not getting what I want and now I'm mad. My spouse didn't respond the way I want and now I'm mad. Life's not going the way I want and now I'm mad. And Paul says the pattern of this world, I think what Paul's talking about is this idea that self 
is prioritized above everything else. In fact, later on in this section in Romans chapter 12, he's going to say there's no way you can have unity with the body of Christ if you continue to elevate yourself. See, in order to truly worship God, we have to recognize that the pattern of this world tells us, as David Foster Wallace even mentioned, that if we go on a default setting, the thing we worship the most is us. See, worship requires the elevation of one thing, and I would say that thing is God, and the demotion of everything else. And so we wake up in the morning and we say, listen, God, I realize that there's going to be a tendency in my, in my day for when things don't go the way I want them to, to, to point back to me. But I want everything I do to point back to you. And maybe, just maybe, in the course of the day, you had some kind of divine appointment for me and I need to be open to it. But I won't be if I'm worshiping myself. And so God, allow me to be a worshiper of you who elevates you and demotes everything else. This idea of living sacrifice means that you do it while you're, I know this is a shocker, living. Surprise, right? But I remember growing up and we would say we're going to church we're going to worship. And it felt like that was the one and only time we did those things. They were church things. We would sing those songs. And we would do those things because apparently that's what worship was. And worship was contained to about an hour and a half or if the preacher got unruly, two hours. And it all happened inside of the walls. What I came to realize that in my life, and maybe you can identify with this too, that if the depth of your worship happens in that time frame, it will eventually feel foreign and shallow. And so I will tell you today, there are two moments in my life where worship never felt closer. And my family will tell you I'm not a big feeler. That's just, that's not who I am. I'm not a super emotional guy. But I can remember two events in my life where worship was so real. The tears just And, and crying out to God was the only thing I knew to do. One of those times was uh, with our oldest daughter, Zeta. She was nine months old. She, uh, she had to have tubes in her ears and, you know, first-time parent. And so the doctor comes out and, uh, and he, uh, we have this, this conversation with the doctor. And they said, listen, tubes in the ear, easiest thing you could ever have. It's, a, it's not even a surgery. It's a procedure, you know. Uh, I don't know what the difference is. But it felt scary at the time, especially when it was my nine-month-old first kid. You know, I'm like, take good care. It's like, no problem, no worries. It's, it will be over and done 10 minutes. It won't even be 10 minutes longer. So 
take, the, take her back, you know, and I'm sitting in the lobby, and my mom is right there beside me, and uh, 10 minutes passes, and 20 minutes pass, and 30 minutes pass, and it's like 35 minutes, and I'm like, I'm, I'm now like pacing, you know. The doctor comes out, and he sits down, and, and he's like, well, a couple things. Surgery went well. I'm like, good, that's wonderful. Uh, has she ever had a grand moth seizure before? And I'm like, no, did you give her one? You know, like, <laughs> do I need to stab you now? Because uh, I will. Um, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, no. Well, she had one on the operating table. Let me see her now. We make our way back, and she's at that nine-month age where she's just finally starting to say words, and I can hear, Dad, my heart. I said, listen, we don't know what caused this. We're not really sure, so we're going to keep her overnight. You're welcome to stay, of course. They frowned upon the fact that I wanted to lay up in this steel. It looked like a steel cage, you know. It was like very cold and I crawled up in there with her and I held her in my arms. Looked down at this baby. And I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a 21-year-old dad. All I know is the world seems so scary and big. And I have zero answers. They have all kinds of electrodes stuck to her head. I'm not sure what to do. There's something deep inside of my heart that wells up that says, like, I don't have any control, but I know the one who does. So I start singing this song that had just come out just a few months before by Michael W. Smith. It's a song, Draw Me Close to You. I won't sing it for you. It would ruin the moment. But I start singing it over my sweet baby. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. And recognizing that this is the overflow of worship in my heart. And tears are welling up in my eyes and pouring down. And I recognize that all I have to give to this child is the faith in a God who can hold her beyond what I can do. Because I can't do anything. See, that's worship. The other time that seems to be planted in my mind is, is this story of a, a lady. Her name was Wilda Bryan, and Wayne and Wilda Bryan were kind of a staple in my faith as I was growing up. They were an older couple, and as long as I had known Wayne and Wilda Bryan, Wilda was in a wheelchair and came to find out later on as I kind of learned more of her story that she hadn't been in a wheelchair since their fourth child by the age of 29. At this point in time, she was in her late 80s, wheelchair-bound the whole time. Wilda had, had, uh, had such bad rheumatoid arthritis that it had crippled all of her joints. She couldn't use any of her fingers. She couldn't use her arms. She couldn't use her legs. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't dress herself. She couldn't go to the bathroom herself, and she had been that way for decades. But Wilda, despite all of those things, was one of the happiest and most joyful people you had ever met. 
And you might look at somebody like that and you say like, oh man, I feel so sorry for you or how are you? But before you could ever even get to one of those things, she would look at you in the eye and say, how's your week been? How are you doing? Wilda had a, such a deep uh, passion for God in her life that she was unrestricted by her body and it was beautiful. The last six months of her life, uh, I was privileged to be not only her pastor, but also her hospice chaplain. So almost every day I would stop by her house with her husband, and they lived right next door to their daughter and son-in-law and grandkids, and we would stop in and I would write down pieces of her story that she wanted her family to know after she was gone, but she didn't want to tell them face to face. It was beautiful. Words of wisdom and pearls that she had held on to for so long that she wanted them to know. Things that she wanted said at her funeral for her family to hear. Things that she had learned about God and her faith over the course of time that she wanted passed down for the next generations to hear. Early one morning about 3 a.m. I got a phone call from from her son-in-law, and he said, Steve, if it's all possible, I think you should come on over. We don't think Wilda's going to make it much longer. So I hopped in the car, and I drove on over. And I got there, and the whole family's there, and it's a big family. There's about 35 of us in the room. We're gathered around Wilda. She's unresponsive at this point. She hadn't talked in about uh, two or three days. We sang songs and we prayed and we cried and we wept and we told stories. And I pulled out the journal. And I remember asking her months before, what's one of your favorite songs that you love to sing? She said, Jesus loves me. And at the time, I thought, that's kind of simple. <laughs> you know, like, that's the first song you hear, you know, like, you don't want something like jazzier, you know. You... She said, no, I just found in my life that that's the reminder I need. So we sang, Jesus loves me. And this woman who had not spoken for almost three days begins to mouth the words, Jesus loves me. This I know. And we cry. And we hold her. And she passes from this life to the Jesus that she knows loves her. See, the garden of your heart and your mind matter. What you put in there will be harvested. Luke says this, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks, which is convicting for some of us. But I wonder one day on your deathbed when you cannot remember anything else, when there's no other name that seems to come to your mind, because it's almost all gone.
I wonder if now what you're planting in it will be the thing that harvests up. And what is so deeply rooted in you that when you cannot remember anything else, your heart will produce would be the name of Jesus. When you can't remember your name or your family's names or the name of anything else, you will speak the name of Christ and you will worship the one who is above all things and through all things and in all things because you were built for him and you were built to worship him with every first breath and the very last one. And so today as we close out our time, we're going to close it out in singing to the one who is worthy of all of our praise, the one that we want to foster in the soil of our life, in our mind, and in our heart. So church, would you stand with me? And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and give you peace. Him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with tremendous joy. May you be swept away in God's love for you, transformed through the Holy Spirit's power within you. Thanks be to the only God, our Savior who is unparalleled and unchanging, who is matchless and merciful, who is supreme and sufficient, who is before all things, through all things, and in all things, both now and forever. Amen. Church, let's worship him today.